You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We all know that perfection is unattainable, yet so often it is an expectation that we create for our lives which ends up only serving to create more misery. The stories around scenarios that we build up in our minds are just that, stories. Fairy tales that we imagine, often based off of a picture that we see, or a carefully curated and edited final version of events that is made to sell an idea. Think of Valentine's Day, for example. We are targeted to make it more special than the previous year. Every year must exceed the last making it perfect. But the reality is that the roses will probably have some brown on the petals, or maybe a thorn will draw a little blood. Maybe the wine at dinner isn't fruity enough, or the fish might be a little bit dry. In the end, it's just disappointment that follows, and it always feels like a letdown. When a spouse expects that their partner be perfect, nobody will win. It is simply an impossible thing to accomplish. Barbara Anderson was expected to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect size, the perfectly quiet wife who never let on to her suffering. When the people around her learned the truth, it was too late. She was a woman, flawed just like you, just like me, and just like every other person in the world. And her husband, who is perhaps the most deeply flawed of all, was not happy about it. Barbara Anderson's murder stunned her family to its core. Her closest friends knew nothing about her true existence because the picture that was painted could be no less than perfect. Her family believes that if they had known just a little bit about her suffering, that Barbara would still be alive. That if she was not forced into silence by her husband, that she could have had a chance to get away from him and had the opportunity to live a perfectly flawed life with her perfectly imperfect children. After her murder, Barbara's family started the BELA Charities, a nonprofit aimed at supporting victims of domestic violence, raising thousands of dollars for family shelters and pro bono divorce lawyers near their hometown of Orland Park, Illinois. This is episode 58 of Homicide Worldwide. place with our days that we record well you know it's okay because january's gonna last forever and uh <laughs> oh my god isn't that the fucking truth I dude know. it's the 31st today but it's gonna be the 31st tomorrow i think we all know that <laughs> and the next day and the next day you are absolutely right about that man but we don't have bill murray to make it cute this kind of groundhog day i know it's, there's no funny Mm-mm, happening no here funny. january can bite me <laughs> But in any case, here you are enjoying our lovely company, and I am Sally, one of your co-hosts. And I am Kita, your other co-host. And together we form Homicide Worldwide. 
Yay. And here we are. Episode 58. Can you believe it? I say that every week, but I still can't believe it. It's because every week is a surprise. I know. It's true. (laughs) Well, it's very interesting about how you talked about perfection in your intro. I found that pretty fascinating because I do see this sort of striving for this perfect moment or this perfect image. You know, when I go to places like Michael's or Joanne or any of those like craft stores, you know, around Thanksgiving or Christmas, and there's all this very plasticky disposable stuff that you can get to create this sort of like perfect, and it it is really meant to be this like perfect moment. Yeah. And I think about things like weddings, how those are meant to create this perfect moment. And yeah, the danger of seeking perfection is that first, it's very hard to meet perfection. Yes. And then, of course, once you can't meet this ideal that you've crafted for yourself, then, of course, the inevitable disappointment and misery comes swiftly on its heels. Yeah. You know, in the before times, I went to yoga a lot. And that was one thing that they talked about a lot was, you know, just letting go of the idea of perfection. And it is hard because you want things to be perfect. And in reality, just not something that actually exists. Perfection doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But, you know, I was thinking about places like Denmark and all these like cold northern European democracies and that regularly have very high life satisfaction scores. Yes. What do they do differently than we Americans? Reasonable expectations. Hmm. What's that? Here it's like, I want a gorgeous wife. I want a you know sexy husband. I want a huge house. I want an expensive fast car. I want like a high paying job that's like really rewarding. You know, I want, want, want all this stuff. I mean, I do want the fast car and the high paying job. But you also don't expect there to be this huge payday, this huge mansion, this, you know, what you've made for yourself is within the bounds of what you can create. Right. And if you take a second just and look at how we are all trained by ads and marketing, you know, you look new, better, faster. Mm -hmm. You think, well, I'm not, I'm not influenced by marketing. We all are. We all are. We can't help but be. That's right. And the whole point of that marketing is just to create a problem that your product fixes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is around expectations and perfection. Like you can have a better life. You can be better if you just do these things. Right. So expectations have been really in my mind with this particular case. Yeah. But it's kind of a, a long while ago. We're back in 1992. So yeah, this is an older case that took place in 1992, in April of 1992 to be exact. So on April 21st, Barbara Anderson was stabbed repeatedly in a parking lot that was just outside of a TGIF restaurant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This happened near the once prestigious Northridge Mall area that had for many, many years been mostly wealthy and very, 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 very white if you know what I mean. Barbara's husband, Jesse, was with her when the attack happened, and Jesse was also stabbed, but he was stabbed really superficially, and his wounds were not life-threatening, but Barbara was gravely injured. And when the first responders got to the scene, Jesse immediately, and quite eagerly, as a matter of fact, 
described exactly what had happened, and he told them that it had been a group of black men there to mug them, and that things got out of control, it quickly escalated, and everything became very violent very quickly. And it resulted in Barbara becoming the main target of this vicious attack. She was stabbed repeatedly, and she did initially, albeit barely, survive but she sadly passed away of her injuries two days later while she was in the hospital and after being removed from life support. The Andersons, as a couple, were a pretty average middle-class family. They were living in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. And when Jesse made the allegation that he and Barbara were victims of an attack by black men, they gained sympathies of the other scared-as-hell white folk And they kind of instantly became relatable to the people of the community who were kind of living in fear of some of the changes, social changes that were happening in the area. And at first, Jesse really had quite a lot of support from the community about this situation, quote unquote. But, you know, as things do, it changed pretty quickly. And a few days later, Jesse was arrested for the murder of Barbara because he did it. So without further ado, we should just get right into it. For the listeners out there, you should brace yourself because this case is pretty fucking cringeworthy. And a disclaimer here. Yes, very important. Very important disclaimer. Racism does come up in this episode and we're including it here. It's a very important part of the story, but in no way, of course, as you should know by now, is that the opinion or belief of anyone here at Homicide Worldwide. As you should know by now, we hate everybody equally. That's <laughs> so true. No, but it's true. No, but seriously, we support diversity, inclusivity, and equality, and we really, really want to be clear that the content in this episode around racism is not something we would ever endorse. So don't come for us. Yes. Uh, we are just reporting it, and we're cringing right along with you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, there's some pretty narrow-sided stereotypes in this episode, and as you would expect, disgusting, appalling, shameful. But they're not our points of view, and yes. we will tell the story as respectfully and as truthfully as we can around this fact. Jesse fucking Anderson, man. The man of the hour. Mm-hmm. Who was this guy, Keto? <sighs> Let's talk about it. Jesse Michael Anderson was born on May 3rd of 1957 to what we can only assume were his very proud parents, Levi and Mary Anderson. And he grew up alongside his two sisters in Alton, Illinois, which is just east of the St. Louis suburbs. So growing up, Jesse went by Mike, <laughs> as you do. As it turns out, uh, which would have been more appropriate, mediocre Mike, (laughs) right? As he was little more than average as a teenager and a child. He was so unmemorable, in fact, that years after the murder of his wife, his teachers and peers from that time could not really remember him. (laughs) It's like Anne from Arrested Development. Bland. Bland, yes. Her? (laughs) Or like Buster, neither seen nor heard. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe he did go to the Milford school. You can always tell a Milford man. (laughs) Exactly. You know, with Jesse, though, I mean, there was something that stood out with him. He had a really quick as lightning temper. 
And a childhood neighbor named Sue remembered him for this. This was his standout feature. That made an impression. Jesse's father, Levi, died just after Jesse turned 13. And Mary later remarried a very lucky man named Willard. I feel like he already won just by being named Willard. It's a name full of strength and character. (laughs) Willard and Mary appeared to have kind of a good thing going, but this new marriage was just really not working for (laughs) Jesse. And so Jesse and Willard really got into it and had quite a negative relationship. Yes, they certainly did. So these two men folk really didn't like one another, actually. And when Jesse was not quite a teen, but not quite a man, Mm. the two of them got into a physical fight, which sent Willard to the hospital. The extent of his injuries were unclear from what I could tell in the research, but it was definitely enough for him to need medical attention for whatever went down between the two of them. And so after this fight that happened between Jesse and Willard in 1975, Jesse graduated high school and he attended Knox College in Illinois for about two years. He was a student of pre-med and military science. So that's what you want in somebody who's got a violent tendency. (laughs) And he was there on a scholarship, but that scholarship was going to run out and it did so in 1977. And then he dipped. He split. Adios. During college, Jesse had landed a job at Happy Joe's in Galesburg, Illinois. And when that scholarship ran out at school, the owner of Happy Joe's offered Jesse a managerial position in their Clinton, Iowa store. Naturally, he jumped at the chance and he was off to grace Iowa with his presence. I'm sure Iowa was so happy to have him. They were thrilled. Mm-hmm. They're like, thank God Jesse Anderson's here. It's what we've been missing. To save us from ourselves. <laughs> but while he was uh, finding himself, uh, he finally, finally began to sow those seeds of friendship. And uh, he did attend junior college for a time. And while he was winning at life and making an impression, Bill... One of his co-workers at Happy Joe's noticed him and Jesse made such the impression on Bill that Bill decided to introduce Jesse to his sister, Deborah. And when she met Jesse, she fell head over heels in love with him. And Jesse really didn't have a lot to offer. He really could only make a pizza pie. But you know what? That actually is kind of a a useful skill set. But he was out to impress the young and supple Deborah. Hindsight, of course, being 2020, Bill was having some regrettable feelings for having set them up. And despite the warnings of her parents, who could clearly smell a rat, and her brother Bill, that same brother Bill who had introduced them, that Jesse was untrustworthy, uh, Deborah threw caution to the wind, and she, of course, married him in 1980 don't know why it always ends with a marriage. I know you don't have to get married. Well, you know what? Bill had a bee in his bonnet and he discovered that Iowa's ground jewel Jesse knew how to show a girl a fancy good time. And Jesse had been whining and dining Deborah at places that were far above his pay grade at Happy Joe's Pizza. So after Bill became suspicious of Jesse, Somehow, wink, wink, the owner of the restaurant found out that Jesse had been stealing money from the cash register. 
And that's how he was able to show Deborah such a grand old time. Mm. Um, and Jesse was actually asked to take a polygraph test, but he replied, I'd never steal from you. Come on. As he's like sliding a 20 into his pocket. Yeah, he's like, no, I totally wouldn't. That wasn't me. And this got him fired. He got his punk ass fired. So the termination of his employment, I don't know why this happened, but apparently for some reason it happened at the home of the store owner. And as Jesse was on his way out of this man's home, jobless and soon to be penniless, he somehow managed to steal a shotgun from the home. I mean, you know, what? Really? A fucking shotgun? Some good instincts, Jesse. Good instincts. Take a nine millimeter. It's a little easier to conceal. Right. Did they have nine millimeters in the 70s or 80s? I think they did. I don't know. I'm not a gun aficionado. (laughs) Wow. So the owner of the store noticed his shotgun was missing, thankfully was able to recover the gun from Jesse. And despite all of Jesse's bullshit, he managed to avoid... Uh, having theft charges pressed against him. And Jesse just, you know, moved on. And although the Deborah and Jesse marriage, uh, of course, had two tickets to paradise, the honeymoon was over pretty fast. Mm. Yeah, Who could have seen it? Not me. <laughs> Certainly not. Mm-mm. And so uh, D- Jesse and Deborah's marital bliss produced only one child. And then they divorced in 1984 after just four years of marriage. You know, that was probably so lucky for her. Oh my God, wasn't it? And that child too. Right. And she's probably reading the news like freaking, you know, 10-ish years later and like, oh, I dodged a bullet almost literally. Literally. Yeah. She literally dodged. Yeah. Throughout the marriage uh, between Jesse and Deborah, he really opened up to her and told her about several burglaries that he had committed when he was in high school, kind of, you know, reliving his glory days because that's when he peaked. And he informed her, you know, because he was such a badass, that he'd never been caught. And he also bragged about beating a man with a baseball bat. That's not a great quality in a person. It's not. It's not what most women are looking for. I mean, Mm -mm. the anxiety and fear is not the way to my heart. It's really not. It's food is the way to our hearts. In their marriage, Jesse, as you might already suspect, was controlling. He also began to lie about very small things. He rounded out this delightful behavior by being highly critical of Deborah, often berating her over her weight. Ladies love that gentleman, by the way. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, we fucking love that. Ask me if I've gained five pounds. Yeah, I have. And you know what? I'm going to gain five more just because you asked. Just to spite you, I will do that to myself. (laughs) Exactly. Jesse was not physically abusive with her. He seemed to like to play more in the emotional abuse pool. Always paddling in the shallow end, I'm imagining. She also suspected that he had a couple of side pieces throughout their marriage, which is nasty, but would not surprise us over here. No, and he's gross, too, by the mm-hmm. way. Like, he's yeah. no prize. Was he hot in his youth the no. way that Dennis Rader was, like, hot for, like, three <laughs> minutes in his teens? No, <laughs> he was okay. not hot. He, know, he wasn't this... Rader hot. No, not Rader hot. <laughs> I mean, I remember that moment where I saw Dennis Rader and I was like, oh, wow. Oh, God. Oh, and I went and had a Silkwood shower after that. <laughs> Yeah, you got a cigarette too, I'm sure. It's not clean. I'll never get clean again. Oh, God. No, Jesse Anderson was not a... I think he was just always kind of like 
not attractive. Blah. I mean, he was unmemorable, so I don't know. Maybe I just saw it and I don't remember it. <laughs> Maybe she couldn't remember what he looked like. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Every time she sees him, she's like, oh, that's right. It's you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Jesse and Deborah made a move and they went to Chicago so that he could finish a degree in business administration. I mean, he did seem to be relatively dedicated to education, to getting himself higher education, that is. You know, really, because it was all about Jesse, all about you, Jesse, Deborah agreed and she went with him. And after he received his degree, motherfucker filed for divorce and made the outrageous claim that it was Deborah who had subjected him to, quote, extreme and repeated mental cruelty. That's projection. Yeah. Projection is when you accuse somebody else of doing the exact thing that you are doing. But he also added, and God, who could blame her for this, that she failed to communicate with him. She failed to socialize with him and that she failed to support his employment. I mean, I don't blame her one bit for not wanting to socialize with him. He sounds like a fucking tool. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Deborah won the battle for custody over their child. And Jesse briefly paid child support before leaving town. What a guy. She later remarried and her husband adopted her son. And we certainly hope that, Deborah, if you're listening, we hope you found a good man in your second husband and good for you for getting the hell out of Dodge while the getting was good. Yeah, no shit. But Jesse was not to sleep alone for too many more nights. He managed to pull it together and graduated with a degree in business administration from Elmhurst College in 1984. Well, enough about Jesse, because he sucks. Let's talk about Barbara a little bit. Yes, let's talk about Barbara. Barbara Ellen Lynch was born on December 9th of 1958 in the Chicago suburb of Alsip, Illinois. She came from a really large family. They were devout Christians, and Barbara had many siblings. She's remembered fondly by those who knew them. Those who knew her best, including her parents, said that she was a private person and that she was unlikely to ever tell other people about her problems. Barbara and Jesse met in Chicago in 1983 when he was still studying business and still happened to be married to Deborah. So just a short time after he and Deborah divorced and he graduated, He was united in wedded bliss with Barbara Lynch on March 30th, 1985 in beautiful and home to absolutely delicious food, Chicago. Chicago has great food. Also home of Malort. I'll have another. (laughs) When 1987 rolled around, they moved to Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and they had their first child. And, you know, as a good woman does, and Barbara was a good woman, by the way, Um, She let her husband take the lead role in the family, and she kind of just retreated into her rightful place as a dutiful and devoted and quiet little... Quiet. Be quiet, Barbara, little wife, who was a homemaker. She cared for their three children while Jesse was the breadwinner for the family. It was just the way he wanted it because he was controlling and he didn't want her to have her own identity. He wanted her to be a specific way. And uh, she wasn't, I would imagine she was not allowed to make any eye contact. Neither seen nor heard. I'm telling you. (laughs) Speak when you're spoken to. (laughs) I was going to say that. 
<sighs> Outside of being a wife and a mother, there's not really that much out there on Barbara, who she was as a person. We know that she did some volunteer work at the Catholic Church and basically doted on her children. She sounds like a nice mom. She sort of sounds like, you know, the perfect mom. You know, I can't help but think that the house where they lived was like a wall-to-wall carpet in that mauve color or like emerald green and that they had only oak cabinetry and there was a collection of porcelain dolls somewhere. Oh, that sounds quite terrifying. It sounds horrible. (laughs) Porcelain dolls, not great. No, just creepy. They follow you with their eyes. They do. Mm -hmm. They do every one of them every time. So the Andersons were really kind of regarded as just a, a real nice, respectable, and most, most importantly, importantly, white, Whitey McWhiterson couple. Yep. So white. Mm. So white. According to sources, Jesse wrote a letter to Barbara before they were married. And in this letter, he expressed his expectation. <sighs> and remember, that's the enemy of happiness, people. God. His expectation that the marital union that they were about to embark upon would be nothing less than, quote, perfect, end quote. And his concerns, it seems, were due to his having been raised in what he described as conflict. And when the Andersons relocated to Cedarburg, Jesse took a job as a salesman at the Lakeside Oil Company in Milwaukee, and they started living their perfect marriage. Yes, it was Jesse's best life. Mm-hmm. All about Jesse. In his early 20s, he found himself working in a few different roles at the Chicago Railroad and also the Northwestern Railroad. And because of this, he had kind of greased the wheels of the corporate America gods and established connections at this Lakeside Oil Company because it was one of the railroad's suppliers. You know, it's all about connection. Um, And strangely enough, after the move to Cedarburg, Jesse became something of a well-respected local businessman, although I use the term well-respected loosely. Still, Jesse was definitely in the boys' club, and despite rarely being in the office for his job, he was described by the owner of Lakeside Oil Company as a, quote, model employee and real family man, end quote, And, you know, as it was, Mr. Cedarberg himself was also treasurer of the Lions Club. I don't understand what the fuck. (laughs) Nothing about this case makes sense, by the way. It doesn't make any sense. Nope. Nothing. If you're having trouble making sense of this, so are we. In addition to fulfilling the corporate middle management dream, Jesse found that he was also drawn to local politics. Mm. Politics are all about power. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Shocking. The heart wants what it wants. And <laughs> it certainly it does. Sure freaking doesn't. He wanted power. And soon he went for a city council role. And in a fierce election, uh, the incumbent lost to a more seasoned man, as in a man with 24 years to Jesse's almost zero. And some sources say that this wasn't his first political campaign, but it certainly would be his last. Sure would. Mm-hmm. The election was a nonpartisan race, and Jesse's position was that his experience as a businessman was what would serve the good people of his community best. And he felt that the county government 
should have been run more like a business. And he felt that he was just the man for the job. I bet he did. The people felt otherwise. Jesse lost by 12 votes to Clarence Bosch on April 7th, 1992, just two weeks before Barbara was murdered. Yes. In his pursuit for his bureaucratic bliss, Jesse also had applied to work for the FBI and CIA because what? Power. 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 Jesse later alleged that the reason that both agencies gave for not hiring him was that, brace your fucking selves, they were not hiring white males because of affirmative action. <laughs> yeah, this, the FBI and the CIA are not hiring white males. Yeah, <laughs> that's the reason. Yeah, that's I'm sure. It. I'm sure that had yeah. everything to do with it. In freaking 1992. Mm, that's the freaking one. You know who else applied to be in the police force and was turned down? Dennis Rader. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, well, there have been several of them. <laughs> right. He actually was first top of mind. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as one might expect, uh, the details about Jesse's interview and his several rejections from both agencies remain confidential. So it's Jesse's word against the FBI and CIA. <laughs> In 1987, the same year that the Andersons moved to Cedarburg and Barbara's first child was born, and the same year that Jesse started working at Lakeside Oil, she wrote a letter. This letter was to Jesse, and it was found only after her death. In this letter, Barbara mentioned physical and mental abuse, and also mentioned Jesse's consistent threats of divorce. Things between the couple began to get progressively worse for many reasons, but the number one being because Jesse was a real dick. He really was a real dick. And, you know, that last uh, sentence that you read, his consistent threats of divorce. I mean, that's another power play. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not the breadwinner. She's probably at this point, even if she had gone to college and had a higher education, she had been out of the workforce for a while. And this was the 90s. I mean, it's still hard for women to get back into the work workforce after they've had children now. Mm -hmm. And 30 years ago, it was certainly not very easy. And so this was his way of keeping her down. That's right. And, being and it was not a threat that it's not a light threat. I mean, no. if, he, if as the main breadwinner, he had left her or divorced her and left her with, you know, three children, that would have been an extremely difficult situation for her. She knew it. She knew it. And I would imagine that by that point, she was probably so emotionally beat down that she didn't have the confidence in herself to make a move. So she put up with it. And on that note, Jesse was very cruel to Barbara on many levels. But one thing that he was cruel to Barbara about was her weight, just like he was with Deborah. And after her third child was born... Barbara had some trouble losing her pregnancy weight, which is about the most normal and absolutely expected thing after a person pushes out another person from their body. It's totally natural and really just blows my mind. But as a really important side note that I can't believe I even have to fucking say, I just want to make the statement that this is not something that any woman should ever be shamed over. And if you're a man who does this... You should fuck off. Please do fuck all the way off over there. Please. Yes. Yes. Regardless, Jesse 
just was on her ass about her weight. And he was increasingly angry with her over the fact that she was having trouble losing the baby weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as though like she did this on purpose. You know, I'm, I'm sure that's what she was looking for, Jesse. Dude, three babies, okay? Three babies like, in a short period of time. Right. We're talking 1987 to 1992. And even if you, quote, lose the weight... <sighs> Shit's not just going to snap back. No. And the the expectation that it's going to, again, with the expectations, expectations. the expectations that your body's going to like six weeks later, you know, I feel like honestly, that's almost gotten worse since social media has risen. Mm -hmm. And you see these like, you know, these women with like six pack abs, like six weeks after they've had babies. I'm like, oh, that's not attainable for 99.999 recurring of the population. Right. But, you know, again, I think he was just driven by this dream that could never be and trying to shoehorn his wife into a role that she was never going to be able to physically never going to be able to fulfill. And also, even if she was doing her absolute freaking best and was wanting and trying to lose weight, which sounds like she was. She's got three little kids. Yeah. Okay, you don't exactly swimming in time to work out and meal plan. Yeah, exactly. And that's that was my thought too. I'm sure her life consisted of pickups, drop-offs, drive-throughs and home. <laughs> that's right. And sleep when the hell you can get it. Well, Jesse by the way was not exactly Mr. Freaking Universe. No, he wasn't. No. No, he was no prize. He was no prize. Yet he wanted a trophy wife. And he was not down with Barbara not being that perfect 10. He was not willing to have her be any less than what he was demanding. And so in January of 1992, Barbara went to see a counselor without Jesse and most unthinkably without his permission. Barbara. Barbara? Barbara, what are you doing? No, it's ridiculous. And in this meeting, she talked about Jesse and the burdens that he constantly was placing on her, specifically over her weight. Yes. Barbara was deeply, deeply unhappy. And she was really hurt. I mean, you know, not just outside of being unhappy. Imagine the hurt that comes with this. She didn't have many avenues for happiness. And as a response to this, you know, she was kind of going counter to what he was wanting. And she became kind of an emotional eater. And so in one instance, she didn't properly cover her tracks. And Jesse found a candy bar wrapper. He became irate and he just let her have it. He berated her and he made her feel like shit about it. And there were multiple occasions where friends who came forward after the murder say that they had actually snuck her treats so that she could have him when Jesse wasn't around to see her eat them. I'm glad she had some buddies who would like give her some contraband chocolate. <laughs> They're like, here's a Snickers. Go. Hide it. Hide it. Bury them. Go quickly. Bury evidence. Go, 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 go. Stick it in your mouth. <laughs> exactly. Poor Barbara. After her murder, several of Barbara's friends reported that Jesse had begun to control who she spoke with on the phone, going so far, for no apparent reason other than to just monitor her, to prevent her from talking with certain friends by telling them that she wasn't home, even if she was, if they called the house and he was the one who happened to answer the phone. One friend named Rosalind said that Barbara would take the phone from Jesse and tell him to cut it out if she happened to notice that this was going on. Good for her. Yeah. 
Another acquaintance claimed that Barbara had attended meetings for battered women, like on the down low, and it was alleged that Jesse would hit Barbara in areas of her body that would be able to be easily hidden by clothing. However, the records of like the attendees never showed her name. So it's unclear if she did attend these. If she did, it's not unthinkable that she could have used a false name so that nothing could ever get traced back to her. That tracks. She's scared of him. There's no reason to use her real name. That was my thought, too, because when I read that, I was like, well, I mean, that doesn't mean that she didn't attend. That just means that maybe she was trying to keep it quiet. Barbara had written other letters to Jesse where she promised to work on her weight if he would work on being less of a critic and stop trying to find fault with everything that she did. It wasn't just her weight that he was critical of. It was quite literally everything that she did from the moment she woke up until the moment she went to sleep. And it's 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 just, God, I you know what? This guy, man. You know, in March of 1992, in an apparent effort... To work on their marriage, Jesse and Barbara spent four days on, quote, a second honeymoon in Jamaica, which sounds nice, right? Um, it was just the two of them. The kids stayed back and they hung out with one of Barbara's brothers. This vacation painted an idyllic picture for the Andersons' life together. It was very very carefully crafted. It was one for the people in their lives to see that would not ever support the idea that the couple needed counseling. However, in the weeks just before her murder, Barbara had confided and told a friend how miserable Jesse had made her on this trip. And Barbara had told her friend that on multiple occasions while in Jamaica, that she had feared for her life and she told this friend that at one point, Jesse attempted to convince Barbara to climb up the side of a waterfall while wearing sandals and ridiculed her for being unable to do so. And when they came back upon their return, she decided to never go on vacation with him alone again. The fact that she feared for her life several times. Feared for her I mean, life. You know, he was trying to like get her to freaking fall off that waterfall. You know it. A hundred percent. That was my first thought when I read that. I'm like, you know what? His hope was that she was in sandals. How mm-hmm. easy would it be for somebody to slip and it's an accident and the blood's not on your hands, even though it fucking is. I mean, no, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesse. So now if you don't hate him yet, oh. sorry, we hate this part. After they returned from the trip to Jamaica, Jesse surrendered the family dog and cat to the local pound. When he dropped the pets off, he alleged that Barbara specifically did not like the dog's behavior, uh, that it was an escape artist, and Jesse claimed that Barbara was uncomfortable with its temperament and that she felt the dog had the potential to harm the kids. It's unclear about what happened to the cat, but the English setter, which are nice freaking dogs, the English setter was put down because of Jesse's allegations that it was aggressive. What a sadistic asshole. A week after Jesse surrendered the family pets on April 21st of 1992, Jesse, who was 34, and Barbara, who was 33 at the time, decided to have a date night. And Barbara had best watch herself. Don't, Don't fuck, fuck it up. up. 
Oh, be careful, Barbara. Mm-hmm. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Put every foot in the right spot. Yep. Mm-hmm. Don't overstep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speak when you're spoken to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's fair to assume that Jesse was probably secretly celebrating the fact that the dog was dead and Barbara was most likely having panic attack after panic attack after her food choices because, you know, he was probably monitoring it. And, you know, he was probably like, that's been five pieces of salad, Barbara. That's enough. That's enough. No dressing, Barbara. That's very fattening, Barbara. She'll have water. No ice cubes. But they took in a movie. Probably something I would imagine. I don't know what was playing that night, but if I had to guess, Jesse probably controlled the narrative with that too. And he probably chose something with some hot women in it so that Barbara could feel even worse about herself. They had dinner at America's favorite restaurant with flair, TGI Fridays, which was located in the Northridge Mall area in Milwaukee. Now, first of all, if you want to make somebody eat a meal that has low calories, don't take them to a freaking TGI Fridays. I think you walk in and you've instantly had your daily intake before eating. Right. It's just in the air. Yes. Um, It just gives more of an insight into what a piece of shit he is that he would take her to a restaurant that is very hard to order low calorie food at and then no doubt give her shit about everything that she chose or put in her mouth. I would imagine. They finished their dinner and... Then things took a little bit of a turn. At 10.15 p.m., a man named Daniel heard screaming from outside the window of his mother's fifth floor apartment in Northridge Lakes. Thinking that it might be a sexual assault, he ran down the stairs and into the building's parking lot, soon coming to the realization that the commotion was indeed coming from the nearby TGI Friday's parking lot. He went into the restaurant to alert the employees there to call the police. Uh, But residents in the apartments nearby who had heard the screams had already called it in and police were quickly on the scene. At this point, people began to congregate in the parking lot to see what the hell was going on out there. But there were no eyewitnesses. It was just people who showed up after the fact And what had happened left Barbara lying underneath a car, her upper body coated in blood, and she had been brutally stabbed repeatedly in her face and her neck. Such a horrible thing. Jesse had also been stabbed, but unlike the unlucky Barbara, who received head, facial, and neck stab wounds, Jesse sustained very shallow wounds to his chest area and they were so superficial in fact that they were not life-threatening almost like they had been inflicted with different intentions i mean you know Mm. tentative if you will yes so a fishing knife had been used in the attack and it was found at the scene and collected for evidence as jesse was sitting against the car he was actively directing onlookers and paramedics to help his wife instead of him. Again with the control. I, know. I can totally see it. Why do you have to direct everything, Jesse? And it's like, no, don't worry about me. I don't even care if I bleed out. Save my wife, please. When he was questioned by the police, Jesse said that they had been confronted by two black men who attempted to mug them with the fishing knife that the men had stabbed them. And he said that the men then ran away without taking any money or valuables from this couple. That's not a mugging, Jesse. No, 
That's just a stabbing, a random stabbing. Quick thinker that Jesse was, he said that he managed to grab a hat off of one of the assailants who was fleeing the scene. Yeah, he must have just known how important the DNA was. Wow, such a thinker. The CIA is like, oh my God, we really missed the ball on that one. I know the FBI starts vying for him. They're like in a bidding war for Jesse fucking Anderson. (laughs) The hat had the logo of the L.A. Clippers basketball team on it. And Jesse happily turned it over to the police as evidence. Here you go. Here's a hat. This is the killer's hat. This, This must be an important piece of information for you guys. You want to take it? Take it, take it, take it. And he also, you know, handed up the knife as well. That fishing knife that was on the scene. The Andersons were both brought to the Milwaukee County Medical Center with Barbara really gravely injured, and she was put on life support. She survived for two days, and Jesse had her removed from the life support, and she died from her injuries. You know, just kind of like what he did with the pets. He surrendered them. He had the dog put down. He took his wife off of life support. I mean, what the fuck is this guy doing? Jesse made the claim that she would not have wanted to be kept alive like that. Or at all. (laughs) Yeah. Personally, I'm pretty sure that she just wouldn't want to be murdered, but you do you, Jesse. Medical examiners struggled to determine exactly how many times she had been stabbed in the face. Because the wounds were so severe and so close together but it was later reported that there were at least 19 separate stab wounds. Yeah, that's one nine. 19. And stabbed in the face and neck. To receive those kinds of injuries and then die from them, just horrible, horrible. Milwaukee police officers searched for several days looking for potential suspects meeting Jesse's description of the attackers. They questioned white suburbanites, the scared as hell folk, who made reports of robberies around the area. And they asked for the help of uh, local black people to help identify anybody they might know who wore Clippers gear. You know, when you're in Wisconsin and you're wearing a team like an L.A. team, like that's a little different. So I'm sure that would have stood out if that was actually a thing. Jesse continued to feverishly spin the allegations that the attack had been perpetrated by a group of young black men. I mean, he was adamant it had to be these black men. And he really leaned into reinforcing the story by harping on that hat, that L.A. Clippers hat. So just a little historical perspective here. This was a very sensitive time, and the police had to be very careful how they handled this as it related to racism. So just one year earlier, they had grossly botched and mismanaged the Jeffrey Dahmer case, and they could not afford any more negative press. They could not, but the local media was another story. After the attack on the Andersons happened, the local news outlets ate it up. The TV reports were fucking all over it. They were feverishly reporting about how these innocent and most importantly white 
people were attacked and their alleged mugging that had turned into a murder was given a shit ton of attention. So the police were one thing, but the media is really what started a lot of the tension with this. So the story had garnered so much sympathy from the outraged white community while the radio was in the ear of just about everybody who would listen. And the radio hosts emphatically warned the unwitting, creamy people of a white public about the dangers of areas like Northridge. So dangerous. Lock your doors on the way past. Don't drive. One local resident who was interviewed on TV, when they were asked about their opinion on the case, the person stupidly said, they're moving north. Oh, wow. They're by them, of course, they, they mean black people. Jesus, Louise. Um, and in this case, if this is unclear for any reason, the, yeah, the implication that the black community was beginning to come to the white as hell area. And this individual was not too thrilled. No, nor educated, by the way. No, not exactly. The evidence here with Jesse was simply not lining up. His stories just didn't make any sense. And the racial tension in the city was quickly building after suspicions turned to Jesse Anderson just a few days after the stabbing. It didn't take them long. Mm -mm. A five-day search for the men that Jesse described yielded nothing. Nothing. As you might expect, because they don't exist. Because he lied. Jesse Anderson was arrested and charged with his wife's murder. There were two factors in particular that led the police to focus their investigation on Jesse Anderson. The first was the lab results from blood samples. Science. Can't fight the science. You can't fight it. And secondly was information that Jesse Anderson had called his wife's insurance company one month prior to her murder to determine whether her $250,000 policy was still in effect. Fucking Jesse. Red flag. <laughs> right. But Keita, what about that Clippers hat and the knife? Oh, yeah. The Clippers hat. Oh, yeah. The totally important piece of evidence that Jesse was just so, like, heroic and handing over. And so insistently handing over, too. Hmm. Yeah, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here you go. Take this. Take this. Well, you know, the one good thing that came out of it anyway from the media coverage is an 18-year-old student named Tommy Miles saw this whole bullshit story. And he said that he and his girlfriend, Wanda Jackson, had visited a Northridge mall shortly before noon on the day that the murder took place. They were there to look for jobs. And Tommy stated that as the couple were walking through, they happened to be approached by a middle-aged white man who said that he was also applying for a job. This fucking story, man. This man told Tommy Miles, who was a black man, by the way, that as part of his job interview process, he was being asked <laughs> to buy something from a mall customer. And he offered Tommy Miles... 20 bucks for his Clippers hat. That's the dumbest fucking story I've ever heard in my fucking life. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> Tommy Miles said that the person who bought this hat strongly resembled Jesse Anderson and that he recognized the hat as soon as he saw it on the evening news. Further investigation of the hat showed that it had hairs inside of it, 
which also matched the hairs of the Anderson's dog that were found all over the floor of the car. So the dog kind of killed you back, you fucker. Instant karma's gonna get you! That's right. The knife was much clearer in its origin. Jesse purchased it at a military supply store. Smart. Don't go to Goodwill where nobody will remember you and it's just any knife. Just go somewhere where, you know, you'll be recognized again. Go back to your childhood and nobody will remember you. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Thanks, appreciate that. And on April 29th, 1992, five days after his wife was murdered, Jesse Anderson was charged with her murder. It was determined that the stab wounds that he sustained had been self-inflicted. Duh. In case nobody guessed that. Yeah. It's like your assailants go from being very strong and aggressive attackers who inflict mortal wounds. And then when it's your turn, they're just like, all delicate about it. And then they run away and you steal their hat. Not a stupid freaking story. I mean, and that you had to like buy this hat for like your part of your job interview. What a dumb man. It's so funny that he's sometimes described as being an overthinker. <laughs> and I really do feel like he really overthought this a little too hard. Oh, God. But not in any of the right ways. No, in all of the wrong ones. Oh, fucking clown. <laughs> Well, Jesse's motivation was the tale as old as time. It was all about money for him. And $250,000 didn't sound too shabby to him. And that was really what he deemed Barbara's life to be worth. That's horrible. Yes. And, you know, just the fact that he even called a month before to see if he was the sole beneficiary of the money. And this is why. I mean, do you think about anything, Jesse? Is this pre-CSI days? Did people not know about forensics or investigation? CSI Cedarburg? <laughs> CSI anything at this point. He needed a little education. Like, I don't know. I feel like even as a dumb teenager, which I would have been at this time, I don't feel like I would have fucked it up this badly. <laughs> no. I am so glad that he didn't get in with the FBI or the CIA. He would have been a terrible agent. He'd taken our whole country down. <laughs> On the basis of the evidence... Jesse was arrested the following Saturday afternoon, shortly after he was discharged from the hospital for his sad little wounds. And with Jesse in custody, but not uh, yet formally charged with a crime, uh, the police really drilled down on the knife. Ora Bronkowski was an employee at a local military surplus store. And she told police that she recognized the unusual red-handled fishing knife that appeared to be the murder weapon. She said that she had sold one of those knives to a balding white man who resembled Jesse Anderson. And this knife really stuck out in her memory because it was the only time in several months that one of those knives had been sold. Couldn't you be a little more subtle? Did it have to be the red-handled knife, Jesse? You know, this is the thing is like in all these situations, he's trying to like create these moments of sort of unusual, like it's always oh, this unusual knife and this like, oh, this L.A. Clippers hat. Whereas if you want to avoid detection, I mean, I'm not encouraging you. A little, you. A little more mainstream. Yeah. Like think? just go and get like a 
freaking Chicago cutlery standard chef's knife. Like something you at can buy. At the thrift store along with the hat. Right, exactly. Or something you can buy at any freaking Walmart. Don't get something that is hard to find. That shit is so easy to track. Police determined that the store where this extremely special red-handled fishing knife was purchased was the only one in Milwaukee that sold that type of knife. On Monday, April 27th, uh, it was the day of Barbara's funeral. Police knew that Jesse was responsible. Like, they knew it. And so they got creative with Jesse, and they took him to the funeral home while he was in handcuffs for a private viewing of Barbara in her casket. The idea here was to play on Jesse's guilty conscience, and they'd hoped that by him seeing her in her casket, that Jesse would be kind of like compelled to give a confession. On the way there, Jesse was casual. He was chatting it up with the officers about sports and even offering to buy them breakfast. And uh, in an excellent display of judgment, the police declined. Officers reported that his entire demeanor quickly changed from the person that they had had in the backseat of their car to the person that was viewing the body. And while he was there, Jesse met with his attorney in the lobby. And when he saw his dead wife, Jesse allegedly said, quote, honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. End quote. I'm sure that was a great comfort to her. I'm sure she was like, it's, it's okay, Jesse. Yeah. All is forgiven. Now. Thank you for stabbing me 19 times. It's okay. While Jesse continued to maintain his innocence, the news of his visit to the funeral home in handcuffs proved to the media that the rumors of his arrest had become true, despite the reluctance of the police to say so outright. This news was bolstered by Jim DeShazer who was the owner of the surplus military supply store that sold him the knife, and Tommy Miles, the gentleman with the hat, and both of whom went to the media to back up the incriminating allegations that they had made to police. These revelations sparked a backlash, a deserved backlash against the media. Yeah. Both from members of it who felt that they had been duped and from the local black community and their leaders who argued that the reporting of the case was irresponsible and had contributed to a long pattern of racism and racial double standards in the media. And here we are. Dahmer, Dahmer, Dahmer. We're back on Dahmer. Oh my goodness, how did we loop in Dahmer? Let's find out. On the heels of what we were just talking about, this long pattern of racism, these double standards in the media, on May 26th of 1991, as you had kind of touched on a little while ago, less than a year before the Anderson case, Jeffrey Dahmer had kidnapped a 14-year-old Loatian-American boy named Conorak Thinsasimfoam and brought him to his Milwaukee apartment. Conorak managed to escape albeit he was naked, and as he escaped and was walking slash running slash stumbling down the street, three separate witnesses called the police to come and do something about this. The officers who arrived were John Balsarak, or Balsack, <laughs> and Joseph Gabrish. And when they arrived on scene, 
Dahmer told them he was there. He told them Conorak was his 19-year-old boyfriend. And Jeffrey Dahmer successfully convinced the officers to return Conorak back to Dahmer's care to go back to their apartment. The witnesses who had called this in were black and they had protested the release of Conorak. And it was obvious that he was injured and bleeding. So at the very least, these officers should have at least called for, I don't know, an ambulance, maybe taken him to the ER. I mean, you see somebody bleeding and naked. It might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Dahmer ended up taking him back and he killed Conorak that night, dismembering and cannibalizing him. Balserac and Gabrish both failed to check Jeffrey Dahmer's ID. Had they taken the time to give even a little bit of a shit, they would have seen that Jeffrey Dahmer had been a convicted sex offender. And when Jeffrey Dahmer was caught just a couple of months later and the two officers' role in facilitating the murder of Conorak was discovered, the officers were fired. And in 1994, both officers were reinstated and Balserac later became the president of the Milwaukee Police Union. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? The mismanagement of that night with Conorak seriously, I mean, seriously damaged the Milwaukee Police Department's reputation. The lesson here of not investigating something suspicious really carried a heavy consequence. So when officers became suspicious of Jesse and his testimony, they knew that they needed to act. And from the get-go, there was a lieutenant named Ernie Maris. He was supervising the crime scene the night of the murder. He said the following morning that the case stinks to high heaven. And surely it did. Yeah, they knew. They had total awareness that something was fucking rotten in Denmark. So enough about Jeffrey Dahmer. What happened to Jesse anyway? Let's find out. He got his. Woohoo! And Jesse was obviously guilty of sin. And his trial began on August 3rd, 1992. Naturally, as a person might expect in this instance, Jesse maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial process because he was a conniving bitch. <laughs> The defense tried to have the trial moved out of Milwaukee due to the overwhelming local media coverage. They argued that because of that media coverage, the jurors would be biased and unable to be impartial. And the court denied the change of venue. Wah, wah. Yeah. It took only nine hours of deliberation for the jury to find Jesse Anderson guilty of first degree homicide on August 13th, 1992. Thank God that that jury didn't dick around. Yeah, this is not a freaking Orenthal James kind of a jury or no. a freaking Durst kind of a jury where they're like, well, I don't like the look of that prosecutor. She's an East Coast bitch, so <laughs> not guilty. She has an agenda. Mm -hmm. Jesse was sentenced to life, but he would be eligible for parole in 2052. At his sentencing, the good judge, Michael Goulet, said that Jesse had, quote, preyed upon fear and racism, end quote. Jesse continued the facade of innocence, and he made the outrageous claim that he had been made a scapegoat 
in a farce that some people call a trial. Wow. What a wordsmith. And he would never, never stop looking for Barbara's true killers. While Jesse was getting used to his new place of residence at the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin, he quickly got to work on appealing his conviction. As a true man of the people does, he gave an exclusive interview to Jim Stingle of the Milwaukee Journal, wherein a droopy-eyed and quite pathetic Jesse uh, described his plight of a, quote, wrongful conviction, end quote, and the burden that was associated with his efforts to get a new trial. Oh, God, you poor man. Oh, so sad. You're suffering. Jesse talked about the occasional letters of support that he had received and his interactions with fellow Columbia inmate and notorious serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who was featured in episode 17 of Homicide Worldwide, as well as a few moments ago. Hmm. And yet another criminal who decided to act on their own as their own advocate, Jesse hired a private investigator and he found several men who claimed to have witnessed the murder in question. That's Barbara's murder, by the way. They claimed that after the attack that they were simply too afraid to come forward because they feared for their safety. Scared as hell white folk. They alleged that the perpetrators of Barbara's murder were never charged with any crime, and it was later determined by authorities that there was no way that the three black men that they named could have been in the area. Imagine. Right? Well, Jesse found a way to pass the time in prison, and he got a little part-time job in the prison's hobby shop. Oh, I wonder if he was really good at knitting and crocheting. Yeah, doilies galore. Doilies galore, exactly. Would you like me to sew you a blouse? Mm, puffy sleeves. <laughs> yes. But as it turned out, he did not get along well with his fellow inmates, specifically those who were black. Imagine that. I'm sure they really enjoyed the story that you made up about them and people in their community asshole. Yeah, I'm sure they loved it. So he really fucked up in this way, too. He went so far as to vandalize Another prisoner's artwork of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Big mistake. Being the giant pussy that he was, um, Jesse blamed the vandalism, which depicted a bullet pointing towards Dr. King's head. I mean, come on! Oh, just awful. He claimed that it was another inmate who did this. What a bitch. You do the act, but then you point the finger at somebody else. Hmm. It's almost like he's done it before and it didn't work that time either. Shocker. Jesse had previously told people that he didn't like the inmate who he blamed and that he wanted to get them into trouble. It's like a fucking five-year-old on a playground. And because Jesse sucked at literally everything in life, the marker that was used for the vandalism was discovered in his cell. Dumbass. Jesus Christ. At least put it in your ass, Jesse. I know at the very least. The punishment, though, for this was that Jesse was to spend five days in solitary confinement. I don't know why just five days. I feel like it should have been longer. But that decision was made on April 21st of 1994, which was, in case you've lost track, the second anniversary of Barbara's attack. The spokesperson for the Wisconsin Department of Corrections noted the irony of this. That's what he did in his crime, wasn't it? Set it up and blame others. 
As if we need the validation to quit beating a dead horse, on August 30th, 1994, Judge Diane Sykes agreed to hear the testimony of the two alleged witnesses Jesse claimed his PI had located. There was a lot of debate over the validity of these witnesses in the months that had led up to Judge Sykes hearing this. And by the time she did, the defense had actually thrown in the towel because they knew it was just lipstick on a pig. For whatever reason, though she heard it and during the testimony, if you can call it that, one of the witnesses quickly admitted that he had lied and the other told an inconsistent story as they related to the details around Barbara's murder. When she had had her fill of this rhetoric, Judge Sykes threw out the case halfway through the following day of testimony. She's like, I'm over it. Stop talking. You're done. Just everyone just shut the hell up. I need to go home. This is all bullshit. (laughs) Why did I agree to listen to this? I think the judge should be able to hammer their gavel and say bullshit. And that just ends the case at any time. (laughs) Maybe you should run for a judgeship. I would be the best judge ever and the most verbally abusive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What if we were on the Supreme Court together? (gasps) I know nothing about the law, really, but guilty. I want to see everybody in my chambers immediately. You're in contempt. (laughs) So Jesse actually dug in his heels and he continued to maintain his innocence. And he began to work on his defense against a wrongful death lawsuit seeking $20 million on behalf (laughs) of his and Barbara's children. (laughs) Jesse, you done fucked yourself, pal. You're not smart, pal. Well, Jesse, your troubles aren't going to last much longer, buddy. Two weeks after Jesse's little stint in solitary confinement, on the morning of November 28th, 1994, Jesse Anderson was assigned to a routine bathroom cleaning detail at the prison alongside two of his fellow inmates. One of them... Christopher Scarver, who is serving a life sentence at the Columbia Correctional Institute for the murder of Stephen Lohman, a worker at a job training program, uh, Wisconsin Conservation Corps in 1990. Christopher was upset that he had been fired from the training program and he allegedly began drinking and hearing voices. Christopher allegedly returned to the workplace after his little bender with a pistol and he demanded money. Stephen Lohman gave him what he had, $15, and Scarver wasn't happy with that, so he shot him three times. Christopher Scarver had also previously pleaded an insanity defense at his 1992 trial, where he told a psychiatrist, quote, nothing white people do is just, end quote. Can you guess who the third inmate was? Does it rhyme with schmeffly schmarmer? (laughs) It was none other than... The Milwaukee cannibal himself, Jeffrey Dahmer. While on this detail, the three inmates had been unsupervised for more than 20 minutes, which I feel is very strange. And possibly um, kind of like an open door that people were invited to walk through, a metaphorical open door. I mean, yeah, you never know. Christopher Scarver used a metal bar that he had somehow removed from the prison's weight room to severely beat both Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson 
allegedly after a confrontation with Jesse. The story goes that Scarver retrieved the steel bar, tracked down Anderson, and then bludgeoned him and then Dahmer. After Christopher Scarver threw these two fools a beat down, he then calmly returned to his cell as if it was a normal day on the prison detail. A little mopping, a little scrubbing, a little bludgeoning. All good here, boss. <laughs> Nothing to see. <laughs> Nothing to see. I don't know where all this blood came from. I was cleaning. Yeah, the brain in my hair, it's not mine. I don't know about those two. I mean, yeah, no, they were huh? totally fine when I left them. <laughs> now they're in pieces on the floor. <laughs> well, the guards discovered Anderson and Dahmer only after they discovered Scarver and they asked him why he had stopped working early. Christopher Scarver responded to this question by saying, quote, God told me to do it. You will hear about it on the six o'clock news. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead, end quote. In fact, he was halfway right. Jeffrey Dahmer was pronounced dead an hour after the incident at a nearby hospital. But Jesse Anderson managed to hang on, if only in vain, and he remained in critical condition, hopefully suffering in some middle twilight world, for two days, the same amount of time that his wife hung on for, before ultimately succumbing to his wounds and dying. Die! Mm -hmm. And the world was better for it. Right? He clung to life. The exact motive for the killings of Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer has remained a little bit of a gray area. While Christopher Scarver did have a history of schizophrenia and he had previously claimed voices in his head told him he was the, quote, son of God and the chosen one, end quote. That's unlikely. That's probably not the case, Chris. Probably really not true. Um, he was also well known to have a great dislike for white folk and specifically loathed Dharmar because of his crimes against his black victims. Christopher Scarver was rightly so not a big fan of Jesse either. I'm sure that Jesse's defacing of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. picture didn't exactly sweeten Christopher Scarver's attitude towards him either. Yeah, I'm sure that did not score any kind of friendship points mm -hmm. with anybody. And, you know, to your point earlier, over the years, there has been a lot of speculation that the prison guards uh, who were on the detail that day may have intentionally left those three men unattended with the thought that Christopher Scarver would potentially attack them. I mean, that's kind of putting a lot of faith, though, in Christopher Scarver, like to take on two people. Right. Um, but they did. I mean, whatever. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But it really is anybody's guess at this point. And probably we're not going to know the whole truth around that. But the theory that that happened, it's never been proven. So it's just conjecture at this point. There are endless documentaries and commentaries on this as it relates to Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, there's very little out there, though, on Jesse Anderson. His murder in prison is just sort of like a little barnacle on the murder of Jeffrey Dahmer. But regardless, their deaths have triggered much doubt in the guards who many people believe deliberately allowed Christopher Scarver to work unsupervised with two of the prison's most notorious inmates. Thereby cleansing the world of some real shitty people. I mean, you know how I felt about Jeffrey Dahmer. I still had a little sympathy for him, but mm -hmm. it's to me, it was just so interesting in this case how they came from the same geographical area. Their lives just sort of overlapped in such very strange ways. They had, you know, just less than a year between the two of them. 
They were on this detail together. They were murdered on the same day. It, it was just so odd to me that these two notorious men were taken out in the same day. Do you want one more interesting fact about them together? I would like that. Were they lovers? Oh, my God. Wouldn't that just be the cherry on top? <laughs> they were both prosecuted by Carol White. Holy crap. Really? Yeah. She was the uh, district attorney and she was the prosecutor in both uh, the case of Jeffrey Dahmer and in the case of Jesse Anderson. They were like kindred souls. And they died together just the way God intended. Just the way God intended. Or Christopher Scarver intended. But he is <laughs> he the is son, the of, son God, of God. So it's really the same thing. <laughs> I mean, you know. And the circle is now complete. <laughs> oh, are we ready for some fun facts? Boy, howdy. I know. We kind of do need a little bit of a palate cleanser, huh? Mm-hmm. Unicorn chaser. Right. Yeah. It's like pretzels after a beer. Mm, exactly. Happy Joe's was founded on the best fucking idea ever of pizza and ice cream. Yeah. Best idea of all time. They also claim to be the first pizza restaurant to offer a taco pizza. What the which fuck? Is, Why haven't I never heard of this before? A taco pizza? No, I've never heard of this before. I know I'm Australian, but serious, I've never heard of this before. You've never heard of a taco pizza? No, I'm, I'm like, really feel sad that I've gotten to this age and have never discovered it. This is really crazy. There's so much cuisine in America that I've yet to discover. You know a Mexican pizza at Taco Bell? No. That's okay. it, is it? Come on, Sally. God, I need to, like I said, <laughs> I need to broaden my, my palate a little bit. <laughs> yes, you do. Okay, so this pizza is made with refried beans, tomato sauce, cheese, lettuce. T- I could do without this, the tomato, and taco chips. It's literally what some people might call the perfect stoner food. <laughs> <laughs> it was born at the hand of Joseph Witte. There are over 50 stores in the Midwest. Happy Joe's stores in the Midwest. You lucky bastards. Fucking lucky people. Mm -hmm. In 2005, they began offering breakfast pizza, which I'm not sure what the toppings are. I can imagine, but I don't know. And they only offer that at a few locations. But according to the olden internet, they also offer what they describe as, quote, outlandish birthday parties. (laughs) So... When I hit my next milestone, I'm expecting a trip anywhere, any one of them, I don't care, mm-hmm. to a Happy Joe's restaurant because I want some pizza and ice cream and an outlandish birthday party. That's all I want. That's all I want. Do you know that, I think, I don't know how much it is, but I think it's a couple of hundred bucks an hour. Apparently you can have like an ambulance on standby. And I feel like if you're going to have an outlandish <laughs> birthday party, that's not a terrible idea. I mean, why not? I mean, choking, heart attacks, like sudden onset of diabetes, sugar so crashing, cheese. tripping on ice cream spills on the floor. There's so many delicious ways to get injured. I mean, right? Seriously. <laughs> Christopher Scarver pleaded no contest to the murders of Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer, and he was sentenced to an additional two life sentences. He seemed to really accept this and didn't seem to care much. He now stays busy by writing songs, music compositions, short stories, poetry, and prison policy proposals, as well as creating original art. He also showed interest in obtaining a degree in mechanical and electrical engineering. That's nice. Right. Kind of want to write to him. Give him a little thank you. 
Dear Christopher Scarver. Thanks for doing us a solid. Yes, you've done so much and asked for so little. I feel like there's a point at which when you have a bunch of life sentences, what's another or another one? You might well, as that's well exactly. Just, uh, yeah, they didn't seem to care. What are they going to do? Put you in prison for life? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Because he's an author, he has poetry books for sale, including a title that can be found on Amazon called Good Seed, the Poetry of Christopher J. Scarver. Hmm. It surprisingly has a 4.3 rating on Amazon. It's it's pretty um, diverse. Like there's a couple of one stars, but... For like um, the people who are like seriously reading it as like a work of important poetry and they're like, oh, one star. Yes. I did love this one review that somebody gave it. They gave it a five star. Um, and they said of this book, quote, short poems, but the... <laughs> But the author did take care of Dahmer in prison, so he'd done the taxpayers right. He seems to have peace within himself. <laughs> he'd done the taxpayers right. End quote. <laughs> I love that. He's like, <laughs> it's the best thing ever. I was like, okay, you're going in the fun facts. It's like resealing roads and infrastructure <laughs> and bridge rebuilding in Christopher Scarver. Yeah, exactly. Build back better. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that Northridge Mall that we kind of talked about, that area, uh, the last store closed in March of 2003. It was an empty mall. It was dying slowly. And its new owners were pretty much free to begin planning the demolition and redevelopment, but nothing ever came of it. And in 2008, a Chinese investment firm called Black Spruce bought it. In the years that followed, Black Spruce made numerous empty promises to the city of Milwaukee and the abandoned mall became home to vandals, which, of course, is dangerous because that building hadn't been maintained. It was not structurally safe, Hmm. um, but it was all kinds of tagged. And Black Spruce took absolutely no action to fix it. And so the city of Milwaukee condemned it in April of 2019. All this time, it's just been standing there completely vacant. I mean, I can only imagine how creepy it is. They ordered it to be torn down, and at that time, they estimated that the building was worth a mere $81,000, and the overhaul necessary far exceeded its value into the millions. On July 22nd of 2019, a black spruce maintenance worker named Victoriano Diaz and his crew investigated a high-voltage transformer on the property from which a copper, like a bunch of copper wire had been stolen. Mm-hmm. And when Diaz touched the metal door of the transformer box, he was electrocuted and died within minutes. <laughs> His co-worker and brother-in-law, Alex Sanchez, pulled him away from the box and suffered third-degree burns from touching him. And the crew was unaware that the black spruce was still paying for the electricity on this fucking mall that they weren't maintaining. Why would you still pay for electricity? Dude, why would you buy a mall and sink all this money into it and let it eat shit? I know. It doesn't sound like Black Spruce has a great fucking business plan. It doesn't. It's like buy stuff and then do nothing with it. Dot, yeah. dot, dot. Profit. Use your ass. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe they did it so that they'd have some kind of like a loss on their books or something. You never know with, with uh, corporations, you know, like. You never know. You know. They buy shit like that just so that they can show a loss. I mean, it's probably nothing more than that to them. I feel like a lot of that happens in American corporations. America. America. <laughs> we know how to screw with the system. Yeah. We know how to fuck shit up and party. And fry shit. That's why That's why we have ambulances available for standby. <laughs> exactly. Just in case. <laughs> Clear. Just- 
<laughs> give me another, give me another chicken tender. <laughs> Just get the paddles ready. I can do one more. I can do one more. <laughs> So, Kita, if you were one of our listeners and you wanted to support us, what would you do and where would you go? Well, one of the best ways that our listeners can support us is by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review and a rating, preferably five star, please. Uh, we hope you're enjoying our show. We really enjoy doing this and we would love to continue to do this. Apparently, there's an algorithm out there that helps us be noticed by other listeners. So the more reviews we have, the more five stars we have, the more people will listen, it'll catch on, and then we can stay around and continue to bring you murder. It's what you're here for. That's right. If you want to get a hold of the show and suggest anything, if you want to suggest a show idea or anything you want us to stop talking about, <laughs> you can email us over at homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. We have two Instagram. We have Homicide Worldwide Podcast and we have Homicide Worldwide Podcast Production. Those are both legitimate and you can find us there as well. Follow us, like our posts, invite friends to follow us. We also have a Patreon if you want to support us on Patreon because you love us so much and support the show over there. And just continue to tell your friends all about us because that's the biggest thing. It helps us stay relevant and it helps people know that we exist because that's a right. lot of people surprisingly don't listen to podcasts. So you know what? If you like it and your buddies like it, please share. Yeah. And the biggest thing is really just to give us a rating. That's the biggest thing. That helps us so much more than I even realized when we first started doing this and probably mm. a lot more than people out there really realize. It's it's a free way of supporting the show and it means a lot to us. Successful, diplomatic, gentle, funny, mild-mannered, stable, responsible, outgoing, energetic, enjoyable, intelligent. People who knew him used these adjectives to describe Jesse Anderson. Their experience of him was genuine. Their interactions with him were sincere. But his mask was not. When there's a manipulative narcissist behind the wheel, it's hard to tell what's true and what's an act. And much like a method actor, Jesse inhabited his role. He didn't just talk the talk, he backed it up with participation in community life, a church council representative, treasurer of the local Lions Club, volunteer. He even participated in the Big Brothers program. 
astute observers could sometimes detect small cracks in the mask, and their adjectives were less glowing. Competitive, aggressive, short-tempered, untrustworthy. For Jessie's wife Barbara, a whole different set of words emerged that would more accurately describe her husband. Lying, possessive, controlling, manipulative, demanding, violent, abusive, cruel, emotionally unstable. How can both these personalities exist in the same person? In Jesse Anderson's case, they didn't. One was real, the other was a construction. When the truth about his wife's murder came to light, many who knew him declared it impossible. Not Jesse, surely, he was a good guy. He loved his family, he went to church. Big Brothers program, Lions Club. We humans live two lives in parallel, the one we show to the world and the one that occurs in the silent privacy of our minds. In Japan, these two lives are called tatemae and honne. Tatemae, literally built in front or facade, is the face we show the world, the one that aligns with social expectations of what is required of us. Honne can be translated as true sound, It's the inner world that nobody can access, where we think our private thoughts, make our private plans, sing our true sounds that no one else can hear. For most of us, our inner and outer worlds align somewhat most of the time. It would be exhausting to live two lives, unless you're a malignant narcissist, in which case this duality is as easy as breathing. Jesse Anderson possessed a strange kind of empathy He knew what others trusted, what they hated, and what they feared, and he fastidiously crafted his wife's murder around that knowledge. A 30-something father of three stabbing his beloved wife to death? Never! But two black men? Instant community rage, as he'd planned. Justice was delivered to Jesse Anderson twice, the first through his trial and imprisonment, the second at the hands of Christopher Scarver. And, depending on your spiritual leanings, perhaps there's a third form of justice that Jesse Anderson is experiencing right now, one that will last longer and be far warmer than any earthly imprisonment. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide. because I love him. I'm going to marry my dad. I'm like, okay, we'll see how that works out. Yeah, and it's probably I, not going to work out for you, but yeah. you know, you probably think you're going to be a unicorn tomorrow, so I'm right. not going to put too much stock in that statement. No. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a couple of old, the older girls between drags on their cigarettes. <sighs> Ooh, They're yeah. like, you know what? I'm not going to get married. I'm like, good for you. Good for Who you. needs a ball and chain I anyway. don't need a ball and chain. <sighs> 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 Seven years old and they know how the world works. I love Mm -hmm. it. They're Mm -hmm. wearing black eyeliner and already have crow's feet. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> There's like a, a bottle in a paper bag next to them on the ground. <laughs> exactly. I never ask what's in it. No, you shouldn't. You don't want to know. Mm-mm. Unless you're talking about my butt. Oh, well, obviously. In which case is perfection. Yeah, but, obviously. I mean, you know, I some mean, people obviously. say when you get to be a woman of a certain age, you have to choose your face or your butt. But since, you know, my butt's perfect, so we don't have to do that. I might as well just choose my face by default. I mean, really, it's nothing to be done for my I'm butt. I'm planning on it anyway because I don't really care about the other. No. No. You're sitting on it. I'm sitting on it. Why do I care? Mm. I don't sit on my face. I mean. No. <laughs> get out! <laughs> Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, you can. Tape, please. My face. Please take that out and that don't put that in the outtakes. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. God. Put it in. Put it in. No. And put it in. Ew. Yeah, 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 you yeah, guys yeah. are fucking savages. Yeah, we are. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And sleep when the hell you and can And cleaning get for Jesse and doing his fucking laundry and starching his shirts just the right way. And washing the skitties out of his foul underwear. Oh, God. You know it was... Just filled with awful, too. Yeah, he's just awful. Everything mm-hmm. about him is disgusting. Why shouldn't his underpants also be? 